Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Richard Dawkins is the most outstanding missionary of atheism in Britain today. So wrote Hugh Montefiore in the Church Times in 2005. The next year, Dawkins' The God Delusion was published. Now he's taking aim at God again with the publication of Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide, which his publishers say is aimed at a new generation. Rupert Short is the religion editor at the Times Literary Supplement and the author of books including God is No Thing and Does Religion Do More Harm Than Good? Rupert's new book is called Outgrowing Dawkins, God for Grown-Ups, published by SPCK. It's not a point-by-point rebuttal of Dawkins' latest book, Short tells me. Instead, he says, he is trying to demonstrate why Dawkins' arguments aren't nearly as coherent as he imagines, but also to say something positive about the coherence of religious belief philosophically and to show its practical value. Rupert, your latest book is called Outgrowing Dawkins, God for Grown-Ups, published by SPCK. Can you tell us about it? It's a response to Richard Dawkins' latest book, which is called Outgrowing God. Could you tell us a bit about Dawkins' latest book? Yes, Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide to Atheism. I think there's um, perhaps a little bit of a hostage to fortune in that subtitle, as though we're we're on the nursery slopes. Many people would uh, suspect that he's never got off them in the first place. I'm glad you've asked me the the question about the format, because I I haven't written a point-by-point rebuttal. Detailed rebuttals of Richard Dawkins have already been published from a, a Christian point of view in response to his uh, earlier bestseller, the, the God Delusion, and that was a more detailed work. I've written my book at speed, so what I've done instead of a, a point by point rebuttal is, is to just turn the soil at various points in a fairly large field to try to demonstrate why Dawkins' arguments aren't nearly as coherent as he imagined, but also to say some positives as well about the coherence of religious belief and from a philosophical standpoint, but also its practical value. Many of our listeners may have read or certainly have heard of The God Delusion. How is his latest book different to The God Delusion? It's uh, shorter and although still pretty pugnacious, it's, it's a little bit different in, in format. It's nevertheless very superficial <laughs> uh, in, in terms of, of content, and, and to that extent I think it's probably very like the, the earlier book. The, the first half of Outgrowing God essentially gives lots and lots of examples of toxic or primitive religion, So he starts by saying, uh, I don't believe in Zeus, and I don't believe in this pagan god or that pagan goddess uh, from the ancient Near East, and I don't believe in that pagan god from Germany, and I don't believe in that pagan goddess from Latin America, or what have you. And uh, Yahweh, what he calls the Old Testament god, is simply another iteration. Uh, a bigger but not necessarily better and certainly not a different creature from the big undergrowth of the ancient Near East and in the same way that 
a sensible person today would not have any truck with believing in, in um, Zeus or Wotan. Uh, I don't think a grown-up come of age should have anything to do with Yahweh or indeed any other kind of religion. So that's, that's the first half of the book in a nutshell. And the second half just turns to science and gives what I grant is a very clear account of the contemporary consensus on the evolution of the biosphere. The problem isn't with the scientific exposition. Richard Dawkins is, is a very gifted scientific expositor and various books that he's written, The Ancestor's Tale, for example, are really good in terms of the science. The problem, of course, lies in the, in the spin, in the very peculiar inferences that he draws. Above all, the one that says, because evolution is true, therefore religion is a load of rubbish. And you talk in the book about, I mean, on his portrayal of God um, in the Bible, you say he has a very crude view of scripture. Could you say a bit about that? And that Dawkins is almost quite fundamentalist in his approach to the Bible? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a cliche, isn't it, to say that he's, he's a mirror image of the fundamentalists that he uh, deplores. I think I'd want to go one step further back, though, and say that he, he's very unscientific in, in his understanding of religion. I mean, one of the first things you need to get if you're um, emerging from short trousers, let's say, theologically speaking, is to grasp that there, there was a, a gradual refinement of, of the religious vision o over time. I, I think any anthropologist w would grant that a lot of ancient societies were polytheistic. They would also say that there was uh, a movement from, from polytheism towards henotheism, that's to say worship of one god within a, a still crowded arena, and finally towards monotheism, to, to seeing the source of reality as one, and not on the same ontological plane as the rest of us. So in other words, God is, is not a great big thing competing for space with lesser things. And if, if you grasp that the relationship from a classical monotheistic standpoint between God and creation is, is not a relationship of, of competition, then I think you are well on the way to, to getting what these traditions are, are on about. But Richard Dawkins doesn't even get to first base in that sense because the, the God in whom he disbelieves is a, is a blown up creature. Now that causes innumerable problems <clears throat> further down in the discussion. If you say that your favourite fruit is apples and I say all oh, no pears are much nicer, at least we are agreed on what it is that we disagree about. But Dawkins and the people he criticises are effectively at, at cross-purposes. Now, your question about the Bible is very germane because he is a not just an atheist but a very Protestant atheist, or at least he subscribes to what I would call a debased understanding of Protestantism, tending towards fundamentalism, 
that reads the biblical text in one extremely literalistic, um, left-brained kind of way, you, you might say. It ignores context, it ignores traditions of interpretation, and it imagines that you can get an understanding of an entire landscape simply by plucking one leaf off one tree. Whereas, of course, to, to understand the, um, the lie of the land, you need to, to see things in context. You need, you need a grasp of the big picture. When you deal with um, Aquinas <coughs> in the book and say um, Dawkins simply hasn't grasped Aquinas' thinking, for instance. Yeah, yes, um, people like to um, t- tease me a little bit for, for uh, always bringing in um, St Thomas, and it, it's probably my Catholic background, but I, I do feel that he provides resources which are pretty bomb-proof in terms of contemporary discussion. Of, of course, the, the medieval top-down cosmology has been swept away, by the the rise of modern science, but that that still leaves the bottom-up ontology which Aquinas inherited from Aristotle, and which I I think is is helpful in all sorts of respects, um, philosophical, theological, spiritual. One of the um, things that I discuss is uh, his his, his so-called five ways, his, his five arguments for demonstrating the, the existence of God and the, the fifth of the five ways is connected with uh, teleology, that's to say goal-directedness in nature and this, this is something that Dawkins completely misunderstands in The God Delusion and he, he thinks it's, uh, it's about intelligent design and Aquinas's argument doesn't have anything to do with intelligent design. As I say, it's it's about uh, finality. And there's a curious irony, which is that precisely at the cutting edge of biology today stands a return to discussion of teleology. So if, if you take a, a very eminent um, physiologist uh, uh, like Dennis Noble at Oxford, um, who used not to believe in teleology. He used to be very much a a uh, neo-Darwinian in the Dawkins mode. He has um, changed his view entirely and uh, spelt out his his change of track in his recent book, Dance to the Tune of Life. And he argues that neo-Darwinist ideas favour gene-centric views of biology. And this gets causation in biology the wrong way round. DNA is a completely passive molecule until it is activated by the organism to enable RNAs to be produced that in turn form templates for the production of proteins. Nobel also says that neo-Darwinists have problems with the idea that organisms are agents with purposive behaviour. And neo-Darwinism, he adds, also misunderstands the role of biological uh, stochasticity, that's to say randomness which has given primacy in the, the origin of, of variation. Uh, now, I don't want to get too technical in, in an overview discussion like this, but if you believe in a God who draws matter beings um, above all human relational being 
to fulfilment rather than giving it a push, then I, I think you have a much more attractive and gentle and intimate model for conceiving of the relationship between uh, God and, and creation. There's a, a wonderful line of, of Aquinas which, um, though written of course in the 13th century, just has, has a wonderful contemporary resonance. He says, isn't it fitting not that God turned wood into a ship, but that God made wood that turns itself into a ship. And um, it's interesting too that, that Darwin himself believed in, in teleology. That, that was uh, rather sidelined in the decades after his death, as though there was something a bit spooky about it. But it's what he believes and it's what is vindicated by contemporary science. I think if, if we're talking about science more generally, Christians, Muslims, Jews, other religious believers don't need to be constantly on, on the back foot. I, I'm a little bit conscious that church leaders and others sometimes give the impression of, of being a little bit timid intellectually. There are exceptions, of course. We, we've been extraordinarily blessed in, in this country to have figures including Jonathan Sachs and, and Rowan Williams in leadership positions, but, but they're relatively unusual. But look, look at what a figure like Rabbi Sachs says. In one of his talks, uh, I heard he was quoting uh, that wonderful book, um, Six Numbers by Martin Rees, the, the astronomer royal. And Rees, who is an agnostic, talks about the six um, fundamental constants in, in the universe, the gravity, the strong and weak nuclear force, and, and so forth. And he demonstrates that if any of these forces varied to a squillionth of a squillionth of a squillionth of a degree, then then there would be no world. I mean, I, either the, um, in the case of, of gravity, if it had varied in, in one direction, then the universe would have expanded, but without the possibility of the formation of, of um, stars and planets and, and us. Um, if gravity had been um, varied in the other direction, if it had been very slightly too strong, then there would have been a, a great big crunch, also meaning no us. So the only way that scientists confronted by these, uh, what, what might appear to be extraordinary coincidences, I mean, vanishingly unlikely coincidences, like trying to hit the bullseye on a dartboard up the other end of the universe 13.7 billion years away. The only way that they can explain it is in terms of postulating an infinity of parallel universes. Now, Occam's razor, as you know, says, go for the explanation with the fewest uh, number of variables, the, the, the simplest explanation, in effect. So if you're faced with choosing between a creator who has made a world that is fine-tuned for life on the one hand, and an infinity of parallel universes for which there is absolutely no direct evidence of any kind, then 
it, it does seem to me that at the very least that people of faith can hold their, their heads up high, not just on this question, but, but also in terms of the question of all questions, which is why there is something rather than nothing. Dawkins's intellectual beard in this situation is a physicist called Lawrence Krauss in America who's written a, a book called A, a Universe from Nothing. Um, look at the fine print of a book like that and, and of course nothing doesn't really mean nothing at all. It means the, the quantum vacuum. A quantum vacuum is not nothing. It is a, an entity within a structured cosmos. Naturalism, the belief that everything is ultimately explicable in the language of, of natural science. Naturalism doesn't, doesn't cut it for me because it is not possible in the terms naturalism allows ultimately to say how anything at all can exist. It's very interesting. You work in the Times Literary Supplements. You're in a world which perhaps you might encounter a lot of sceptics and people who are quite secular. Do you get a hearing when, I mean, do, do your colleagues and, and friends in those circles you mix in read things like Dawkins and think, you know, religions of the past, it's irrational? Do you get a hearing for these? I've articles? been very lucky working on the TLS for, for 20 years that my editors, regardless of their private opinions, have uh, allowed the, the paper to be a good springboard for the discussion of, of religion. And, um, I'm pleased to say, I don't think that I can really uh, claim credit for it myself, but I, I give thanks to my editors and to my contributors because side by side with great publications like the Church Times and, and the Tablet, the TLS has been a, uh, a, a good forum for um, detailed, constructive, intelligent discussion of religion and um, I'm pleased to say that we're going to run uh, an extract from um, Outgrowing Dawkins in, in a few weeks time but I think that your question touches on something wider and very important which is that the media as a whole and I'm afraid I would add much of academia, much of the arts establishment, much of the intelligentsia, it doesn't really get religion, sidelines it. There's this dreary narrative that religion is A, uh, violent in the East and B, de dead in the West. And that it's it served its purpose. I was making some notes uh, earlier on from my reading of, of Jonathan Sachs and he, he um, as usual, speaks very, very pithily in the modern world there is um, the existential challenge to religion. Who, who needs it? To cure an illness, you can go to a doctor these days. To cure poverty, you don't need prayer, you can go to an economist. Uh, to confess um, your psychological problems, you can go to a shrink. If you're depressed, you can take a pill. Don't let me give you the impression that I, I think that Dawkins doesn't raise serious questions. I think he, he, he does at least stand on the shoulders of some people who have raised big questions that there was a great age of atheism in my view, probably in, in the 19th century. I mean, a figure like 
like Nietzsche really understood the, the height of the stakes. Hume presented some deep challenges, um, and as did Spinoza. There's the challenge from the problem of evil, um, which curiously Dawkins doesn't make nearly enough of in his book. So I, I want to, to emphasise that my, my argument isn't totally defensive. I want to spell out a positive case to, to try to, to win over the, the sceptics. If you, if you take a, a high table of culture like, um, I don't know, start the week on BBC Radio 4, I've lost count of the number of times in which complacent atheists have told me what I as a Christian believe and why I am an idiot for believing it. You might say, well, religion is accorded a privileged place. We have an in the Constitution, we have an established church, and indeed on the BBC we have thought for the day and the daily service and what have you. What's missing? We're, we're talking about um, hived-off areas there, niche areas. What, what's missing, in my view, is more of a creative cross-fertilisation between what, what are at present rather atomized areas. And among other things in, in my latest book, I just want to, to get out of the, the media and the intellectual bubble and talk a little bit about the enormous social credit that accrues from religion, regardless of what one thinks of the truth claims of this or that tradition. I mean, they can't be disregarded, but we can still say, I think, that the social capital connected with religion is enormous. This was something that we went into, you'll recall, when we spoke uh, earlier in the year about my um, other book. Uh, it came out six months ago. It's been rather a, a creative 2019 for me. Uh, does religion do more harm than good? And in the world as a whole, as I mentioned then, God is winning and democratization, modernization, globalization have, if anything, made God stronger. Three quarters of humanity now professes a religious faith that figure is projected to reach the 80% mark by the middle of the century, um, which is one reason among many why um, we need to try to encourage good religion and discourage the bad and look into the ways in which good religion can drive out the bad. Mm. I guess that could be a, one of the most powerful responses to Dawkins, who likes to portray religion as mainly a force for bad. Yes, I mean, it's, it's a very one-sided picture, as I say. The, the book he's published, uh, Outgrowing God, is written in, in the register of uh, Gombrich's Little History of the World, which is a, a, a beautiful book I'm sure many of our listeners are, are familiar with. But that, that book, that classic, has the merit of, of objectivity. Dawkins is vehemently one-sided, he's highly confrontational in his presentation of the arguments, and when he does quote sources, I'm sorry to say, 
they're almost always um, very, very tendentious, very, very one-sided um, pictures. So it's not um, not a book that I can really recommend. I don't think a Christian or, or a Muslim or a Jew or, or another believer need have much fear from reading it. I, I don't. I've never lost any sleep from the challenges presented by Dawkins, even though, as I say, I, I do respect atheism as a worldview. I just wish that the respect could be a bit more mutual. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Mm-hmm.